I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. We're taking this week to look back on one of our favorite interviews with Meta World Peace from 2018. Meta World Peace has a big personality, which is saying a lot in the context of uh, being an NBA player. Even though he's been named an all-star and won an NBA championship, Ains one of the most polarizing players in the history of the game. He was born Ron Artest. He changed his name in 2012. He grew up in Queensbridge, New York, the same massive housing project that was home to players like Lamar Odom and rappers like Nas and the duo Mob Deep. He got drafted in the first round in 1999 by the Chicago Bulls. As a player, he was always an elite defender, but he had a reputation for losing his cool. When it worked, it made him passionate, tough, and nearly impossible to get past. But when it didn't, things went south easily. He'd play dirty, get into dust-ups on the court. Once in 2004 at a game in Detroit, a hard foul between players escalated into an all-out brawl between players and fans. This incident, now infamous, was called then the Malice at the Palace. Now our test has jumped over the scorer's table and is trying to get down to the bench. Our test is in the stands. Oh, this is awful. Fans are getting involved. Steven Jackson's in the fans. Rasheed Wallace going into the stands. The security trying to somehow restore order. But Meta World Peace has been honest about his regrets in life, and in his years as a player and now coach, he's become a powerful advocate for mental health care. After he helped lead the Lakers to a championship title in 2010, he thanked his therapist. I definitely want to thank my doctor, Dr. Sandy, my, um, my psychiatrist. She really helped me relax a lot. Thank you so much. It's so difficult to play. All this, there's so much commotion going on in the playoffs, and she helped me relax. I thank you so much. When we talked, he'd just written a memoir. It's called No Malice, My Life in Basketball, or How a Kid from Queensbridge Survived the Streets, the Brawls, and Himself to Become an NBA Champion. It's a great story. He recounts his triumphs and shortcomings, including, of course, that incident in Detroit. It's a story with a lot of poignant, reflective lows, but also pretty terrific highlights. Our test, that's a three. Bang! Artest has made four baskets in a row, three of them jams with authority, and a timeout taken by Larry Brown and company. He's just two for his last 13, though, for three, but he steals and doesn't say, oh, it goes in. Go up into the crowd. <laughs> a meta world piece. Oh, I tell you, what an entertainer. Bryant, meta world Meta World Peace, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so glad to have you on the show. Yes, thanks for having me. Absolutely. One of the things that I found the most fascinating in your book was you talking about growing up in Queensbridge in New York. Um, for folks who have never been there, can you describe what it was like when you were a kid in the 80s? Yeah, and uh, I grew up in 1979, and then in the 80s, it was, it was tough because... 
although you had your kid moments, you had fun, you were in the park, you're doing different things like playing skelly or hopscotch. Then you also had those moments where, you know, drug transactions, uh, gunshots, fights, and, uh, you know, nobody's motivated to become educated. You know, all those things were taking place and you just become that. Um, I always tell my kids, you always got to watch who you're around because you will start to act like those type of, those people. You know, and it's not that they're bad people, but if you're trying to be innovative and progressive, you know, it's going to be hard to do that in the environment like I grew up in. You grew up with a lot of family in your house, right? Yes. How big was your family? Family was big. At one point, we had 17 people in a three-bedroom. We did have about 13 people in a one-bedroom. So, yeah, I always, when I, once I made it to the NBA, I didn't think twice about buying a house for me and my two kids and my wife. It was about my two kids, wife, my mom, my sisters, like everybody's going to have rooms. You know, <laughs> that's, that's, that's my thought process when I was young. Did you have this? I mean, like, I grew up mostly an only child. Okay. My wife grew up in a big Catholic family. Okay. And when we got together when we were teenagers, I was always anxious being at her house. Yeah. Because there was just always people around. It was very normal for her. Yeah. And for me, I was just like, I just want to go sit and read a book somewhere quiet. You know what I mean? Like, just just to have some peace. And everyone was, like, being nice to me. You know what I mean? But I think for her, it was sometimes it was the opposite. You know, it was like if there wasn't that clamor, then she wasn't at home. Right. And it's true. And that's how you grow up. You get used to it. It's like that for anybody, any situation, any any demographic, any color of your skin. When you grow up in a certain environment, in a certain way, it's going to affect you. So even if you grow up rich, but your parents is not home a lot, maybe you have nannies. And the nannies are just doing their job. They're going to give you anything you want just to shut you up. You're going to grow up like an uh, entitled kid, you know? Or maybe you're like um, Stephen Curry. You know, his dad grew up pretty wealthy. Well, his dad made it, and he grew up pretty wealthy, but he's still a driven kid. So something's happening in that household. And you can see their parents are on TV together, you know, and, and not everybody is as fortunate. Um, and look at a guy like LeBron James. You don't really see his father in the picture, but you see his mom, very supportive. You know, and so it's amazing, like, what shapes a person. What do you think it was that shaped you? For me, I mean, definitely definitely my mom, my dad, but, you know. They were you, they were together when you were very young and then separated, but they were both part of your life, right? Yeah, they was a major part of my life. So I got—that's why people see two sides of Ron Artesa a lot. It's not one side. Because I experienced that mother— and father laughing, tickling each other, the love. I seen that. And then, like, the next week, you will see the fighting and stuff. So then you see that. But then they're still together. So now that becomes normal. <laughs> That's a normal. Like, okay, mom and dad fought today. No problem. They're still there. I'm happy. I don't care. You know? Um, but then when they separate, that's a problem. <laughs> you know? Because I need my mom. I need that hug when I go to school. And I need my dad because I need that hug. I need to sit on his lap, and that, you know, that's, you know, that causes a lot of confusion and frustration. I think a lot of times for kids whose parents have contentious relationships or whose parents split up, one of the hardest things is that kids just don't have any power right. in their lives. And to have, to have something that painful happen and 
feel like you don't have a way to feel, you know, like you must in some way be responsible in part, but also that you, you are responsible for doing something to make it better and not having any tool to do that because you're a kid. You, you don't have the power to do that. Yeah, you don't. You really don't. I remember, I remember the times my mom and dad would fight. And when my dad and mom would fight, I literally felt helpless. I, I know I was crazy enough to get a brick and throw it at someone. <laughs> but I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to miss. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it's, but you're helpless. You can't do nothing. And it's like you don't want this. You want it to stop. You know, um, and I know a lot of kids go through that. You know, um, and immediately when I started to have fights with my um, ex-wife and verbal fights in front of my children, it, it, at that time it was like, okay, I don't think we could be together <laughs> because um, I was spiraling out of control, you know, um, and, and, and not, not being a, a loyal, a faithful partner, not being a good parent. So at that, no, for me, I said, okay, I have to separate. I've seen this before. You know, and uh, for that, I have a better relationship with my kids and a better relationship with my ex-wife. Unfortunately, is under these circumstances, but I've seen that whole story before. When did you start playing basketball? I started playing when I was eight. Yeah, I, my dad brought me on the court. I forget how he got on the court, but I think, like, he thought I could release some energy. Your dad had been a fighter, right? He was a, he was a boxer. Like my a dad was a boxer. boxer, yes. Golden gloves and... Then he had me. When he had me, he got a job. He's, he was supporting his family. He was a hard worker, really hard worker. Is he as big as you are? How tall are you? He's 6'2". He's wide. He's probably about 240. When he was in his prime, like 240, uh, my family's very, like, we don't look as heavy as we are. Um, you know, I'm like 270. I don't look 270. And we all like that. And um, so you know, I always wanted to box. He never let us box, though. Never let us box. I mean, I can understand why he wouldn't want to let you box. Yeah. It's not safe. Yeah. He didn't. We, we would go see him train, and, he, and we would see him do push-ups. And he's coming home, this big man. And he, was, he was cut up muscles everywhere. And it's like, wow, I want to be like Dad. <laughs> you know? And then you see him play basketball. He, he was a really good basketball player. Um, could only go right, though. But he, was really, he could really shoot. Had a really good, uh, like a, kind of a pro jumper. You know, um, and it's like, wow, I want to be, I want to be like dad, <laughs> you know, um, re re really interesting guy. Do you think that part of your relationship with basketball was about your relationship with your dad, given that you had so many siblings and in the later part of your childhood, your dad didn't live in the house, um, that this was like a place where you could be with your dad? It could have been, it could have been, you know, because... That was the place I was with my dad. When he left, I was pretty upset, you know, and um, and uh, it was all I had um, at, at a point in time, you know, when, when they broke up, I would just go outside and play basketball, you know, so yeah, it could have been something like that um, because I was so passionate. I mean, I put everything, I left everything on that court, and I remember the days where you know, when I was able to play for a full 48 minutes without getting tired and like, and people were like, why are you so crazy? And they just wanted people, players would ask me to not play so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Literally like, hey, um, can you be easy today? <laughs> I remember them days. It was pretty interesting. Did you play angry when you were a kid? When I was a kid, 
We played angry. Yeah, because in my neighborhood, everybody was angry. <laughs> <laughs> when you're on the court, I mean, you know, uh, to get on the court, it was only one court on the block unless you go to another block. And sometimes you don't want to go to the, another block because you don't know nobody on that other block. You know, and then eventually I started to go to the other blocks and just really, that's when you know you're kind of tough because you're not afraid to go on somebody else's block and then, you know, give them some work. You know, and that made me tough too because I used to be afraid to walk on the other blocks. And then they had one court behind the neighborhood, but that's like, that's where a lot of things go down, you know, maybe drug transactions or, or somebody get murdered in the back. It's, it's nobody back there to protect you, you know, right under the bridge, you know. And then I started going back there by myself, you know. And uh, it was nervous, you know, just like shooting and just like wondering who's behind you, you know. Um, and then <laughs> and then I started, it started, I started to become a little, a little tough. And I would walk, sometimes I would walk away from the neighborhood, 45th Road down Vernon Boulevard, Long Island City. It's like the real estate boom, that's crazy. When I was there, there was no real estate boom. It was just like prostitutes and drugs and walking like maybe five to six blocks just to get down to a court, just to practice. I did anything to find a hoop. I would never let a day go by where I couldn't find a hoop. I would find one somewhere. Do you feel like there was a time in your life when you decided that you were not going to be involved in selling drugs? Ooh, yeah, it was. It was. Um, but the first time I sold drugs... <laughs> Quite honestly, because, you know, I've seen it being cooked up and I was a young kid just playing basketball. But it just so happens that, you know, my cousins was cooking a lot of drugs, you know, and they all served time and everything. And then, uh, you know, my other cousins, it was just it was just like, like not my dad or anybody, my brothers, but a lot, a lot of my cousins and, and my older brother. Actually, he went to jail for 10 years for drug trafficking. But, um, you know, it was just like I would ask my cousin for some money and give it to me. And I'm like, well, I could buy some chips. And I know, like, the cousin who gave me money, he sells drugs. And he, he tells me, this is how you make a cookie. But don't eat it because it's not a cookie. Um, I was like, yeah, I want to do that. <laughs> you know, and uh, the first time I did it, I was 13. I bagged it up, cut up the crack, bagged it up. And then um, I gave the crackhead the money. I know exactly who it is, too. <laughs> and um, and um, I'm like, I didn't take the money. I didn't want the transaction. I was looking outside. I'm 13 you, years you old. You passed off the drugs, but you you freaked out and I didn't just, didn't take the payoff. I couldn't take the money. I would go back in the house, and then my cousin, he was like, "All right, where's the money?" I'm like, "Yo, I can't. I can't do this." <laughs> you know, but it was crazy because that's where we played Nintendo at. That's where we um, um, all the technology was there. You know, and it was like a lot of things. Uh, I guess criminal criminal activity going on, but then all the fun was there. You know. And and it was a Christian house, which is crazy because the, the, they never put anything around the mom. But it was she's super super Christian, you know, super into God, into God. So it was like it was weird, man. It was weird. Man, I've never been tougher a day in my life. <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I I remember the point in my adulthood where I had the realization that everyone around me that I thought was weak because they didn't always have their defenses up, everyone around me who wasn't always having that feeling of looking over their shoulder, I, I, I imagine those people, I was like, well, these people need to take care of themselves, right? Yeah. Like walking down the street, you got to keep your head up, you got to keep your eyes out, like, mm -hmm. 
you know, you got to know, you got to know if somebody's on the, you know, if somebody's right. coming at you, mm-hmm. you know, you got to know when to cross the street. And this is even, again, I'm the least tough guy in the world. <laughs> um, and I remember when I had this realization, like, oh, wait, they're not broken. I'm broken. <laughs> I was yeah. like, right. Other people don't, aren't living that way. Right. Because they didn't have to deal with whatever people trying to sell in Morocco when they were nine, you know? Man, man. I mean, I've been, one of my really good friends, Bantu. Um, Bantu was a, could have been a math genius. We was in sixth grade, fifth grade. Seventh grade, he got A's on every test, and I'm I, I'm here working hard trying to get an A, trying to compete with this guy, and I can never get over like a seventy. But I'm happy when I get seventy. And you loved math, that's and I love math. But I wasn't great at math. But that's what people think I was great. I wasn't good. I was driven. It was my favorite subject, and I wanted to be great at it. You know, so Bantu was super smart and should have got a scholarship to Harvard or something, but chose to sell drugs, and he would sell drugs to his mom. You know, and it was the craziest thing ever to watch. And I knew his mom. I used to go at his house. I remember getting Kool-Aid, you know. This is only because I didn't have Kool-Aid in my house all the time. I'd go to Bancho's house and get a cold glass of Kool-Aid. And, um, you know, he would sell, sell drugs to his mom. And I'm like, when I started to go to high school, I'm like, Bancho, are you going to play basketball? He was smart, a lot of muscles, about four inches shorter than me, and looked like a model, had a great look. And he can do anything he want with his life, but he loved them streets. Unbelievable. It seems like you were not the kind of highly touted basketball prospect when you were a young teenager uh, that some of the other guys who went on to have your kind of professional basketball success were. Um, Were you just working harder? Yeah. I I knew I wasn't that good. I I played against Lamar. Another guy named Raheem Johnson, who was Lamar Odom. Lamar Odom. I played against Lamar. Lamar was always amazing. His partner, Raheem Johnson, was better, <laughs> better than both of us by far. Um, but he just, you know, he loved the streets also. And uh, yeah, but I knew I had an uphill battle. I remember seeing Shea Cotton and hearing about Shea Cotton. And I remember, I remember hearing about uh, Kobe and Tracy McGrady. And I'm like, okay, if I'm going to make it, like, I got to go in because I wasn't as good. You know, and people could see my game. I have a lot of flaws in my game even now, like when I played. And they knew I wasn't that good, but I was tough enough where I wasn't going to let you stop me, you know. Um, and I was going to stop you, you know. And I was going to be on the floor and play a lot of minutes. And, and nobody knew I was going to be an all-star or defense player of the year and possible MVP candidate and knocking down big shots. You know, and it was just hard work. And it happens a lot. It's not just me. You look at Mitchell and you look at a lot of these guys, you know, coming out of nowhere. Kuzma from the Lakers, you know, they just work working harder. It seems like you had the same problems uh, playing basketball as a teenager that you had uh, in your NBA career, especially earlier in your NBA career, which is um, every so often you would, you know, throw a whiteboard across the room or something like that. Man, too many of those. It seems like you didn't um, – one of the things that changed as you got older was that when you were younger, at least as you described in the book, you almost didn't think of that as a problem because it was – I mean, I imagine it was really tied into exactly the same stuff that made you work so hard. 
Man, yeah, it, it it was, it was um like when I was a kid. I remember I remember throwing a chair at a referee. I was in the eighth grade, and somebody fouled me. He didn't call it. We were losing. I was so mad. I throw the chair. The, the, and he was a police officer, by the way. Then I get kicked out of CYO. Can never play again. I've been suspended every year I was in school, by the way. I think I said that in my book. I was suspended every single year. Kid, preschool, nursery, all the way up to uh, high school. My, I, I don't think I got suspended junior year. But I did get, and, I, and maybe I did. I cannot remember a year. <laughs> Even in college, I can't remember one year I never got suspended for something, right? And it's just like, why? where's the rage coming from? And then when I was 25, I kind of know where the rage is coming from now as I look back. You know, um, and it's not, it wasn't just from my environment. You know, it was like in the household. But, um, you know, and then my marriage counselor helped me a, a lot when I was 25. He we, uh, opened up wounds and changed my life. And things didn't happen overnight, but I, I can sense, like, things is getting better. You know, things are getting better. When we continue with Bullseye after the break, I'll talk with Meta World Peace about his struggles with anger on the court and how they led to one of his other most notable fights, one with MVP James Harden. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man, sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hey, Mindy here from the Wow in the World Science Podcast for Kids and Families. If you're looking for fun ways to educate and entertain your kids, we've got you covered five days a week. On Mondays, go on a scientific adventure with Wow in the World, and Tuesdays through Fridays, play along with our new game show, To What's in a Wow. It's Wow in the World from Tinkercast and NPR. Subscribe and listen now. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're replaying my 2018 conversation with Meta World Peace. He spent 18 years in the NBA, played for six teams, was an all-star and an NBA champion, and he talked about it all in a memoir, No Malice, My Life in Basketball. The book talks in great detail about conflicts in his life, both on and off the court. One incident in 2012 involved him driving his elbow into the face of another player, James Harden, then of the Oklahoma City Thunder. Artest drives and finishes. And the Laker crowd fired up and a shot as Harden goes down. And Art, uh, World Peace elbowed him. Oh, no. Ron Artest so squaring off with Serge Ibaka. Well, World, World Peace, I should say, but it made reminiscent of Ron Artest. And I don't know if it was inadvertent or not, but he hit him with an incredible elbow. Did you ever go on the court thinking, I mean, I'm talking about when you were in your late high school career, when you were in college, when you first got to the NBA, did you ever go on the court thinking like, I'm going to do whatever it takes today, I'm going to win today, and if somebody gets hurt or whatever, that's the cost of doing business? 
or were you going out there every day thinking like I'm going to keep it clean today but then something went wrong and right when when I played basketball I've never hurt anyone um I've never wanted to hurt anyone definitely never wanted to give up space you know and that was one thing like if you wanted to post up I'm not letting you get to the post up and you know and you have to go around me or through me to to get there so but hurting people was never an option a lot of the flagrant fouls came from the hustle it's always, always extreme hustle. Um, sometimes, like, if you're in the air and I don't want you to get layup, I'll just grab you out the air and put you down slowly, you know? Or if you're going for a layup, I'm going to try to block your shot, you know? Or I'm hustling, but I've never, I never hurt no one. The only one I came close to hurting was James Harden. Um, but he came, he pushed me from behind. And the elbow was vicious <laughs> when I elbowed James Harden. It was this, is, this is kind of a famous play for it's a famous NBA play. plays, yeah. NBA fans. But um, the two of you were running down the court after a basket. You got tangled up. We didn't get tangled up. He came, he came behind me and kind of gave me a push. And, it was a light push. And you gave him what maybe you intended as a, hey, give me some room, it arm, was, elbow. Can, can you curse on the show? You can. I mean, we'll bleep it. Okay. Well, it, it, it was like a get the freak away from me, get off me, don't touch me. Right. Um, but then it, you know, obviously James Harden is six four. I'm six six. I wasn't judging my distance, and it, and it hit him right in the back of the ear, and it didn't hit him flush. He sold it a little bit on the floor, and then I was suspended a couple games. We played them in the first round. It was a smart move by him. Smart move because then I came back and by the time I was in rhythm, it was already game seven or game five. We, we was done in the playoffs. We played them in the first round. But um, but you know um, that was the that was the only thing I really regret in my career because I could have really hurt somebody. You know. Um, but other than that, I always wanted to use all my fouls when I go into a game. I know I'm using all my fouls. I get six and I, I can play with five fouls. I can play five fouls for two quarters, which not many people can do it. You know, um, so coaches never felt like they had to take me out. You know, and um, it was just like for me, I just didn't like people scoring. When the people would score, or if I would lose, you know, I didn't deal with it. I didn't deal with it how I wish I would have dealt with it. In what way? I mean, I wish I could just lose and go home, eat, just go home. You know, I wish I could have just like lost a game and just like, and still go out with my teammates and eat some dinner. I, I, I was literally sick. Uh, I take I took it home. I argue with my wife. You know, um, I don't go out with my kids because I want to go to the gym and get better. We'll be in Indiana, you know, uh, lose a game and everybody's going home. I'm in the gym, you know, um, and my wife is waiting for me. And I just say, just go home. I'll see you later. Don't get home at 2 a.m. You know, something like that. I hated losing. You know, I just couldn't take it. I couldn't deal with it. Couldn't deal with it. After that, uh, after that incident with Harden, did you ever talk to him? I didn't speak to him, but I seen him. I didn't reach out to him or anything like that. Um, but when I saw him, um, it didn't land flush. That was a hard elbow. If it land flush, Harden would have had a super knot on his head. He would not have been able to function. It didn't land flush, um, and I nor did I wanted to. It was more like when when he when he shoved me from behind a little bit. It wasn't tough. It was it wasn't hard. But I was like, it was more like I wanted to shove him. I wanted to literally shove him and like push him, but it was his body wasn't on my body. It wasn't connected, so it was all air and all momentum. 
You know what I'm saying? I couldn't slow it down. Um, and uh, and then partially I wasn't looking for what I was hitting. Um, so, um, and uh, and then I, 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 I thought it was Ibaka also. Because me and Ibaka have a little issue. And he was a little taller than Harden. That whole, so that whole incident was kind of like, that, that's one thing I regret, like even more than the brawl. You know, because uh, in my track record, I never hurt nobody on the court. I never, nobody ever got a hurt knee. I mean, you might have ran into me and maybe got bruised or something, <laughs> but I never took anybody out, never low bridged nobody, you know, never came up under nobody's foot, took them out the playoffs, n- n- none of that stuff. You know, I was watching the brawl that you referred to, which is commonly known as uh, the malice at the palace. Yeah. <laughs> um, and your book is called No Malice. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I didn't remember that much about it other than um, you and some teammates had gone into the stands and that it had led to monstrous suspensions. Yeah. That was pretty much all. I I mean, this is 15 years ago now. Yeah. And as I was watching it and, and also reading about it in your book, the thing that I didn't remember was you, uh, you had basically gotten pushed on the court. And you backed away. You went and lay down on the scorer's announcer's table. Almost like there was still, you know, kind of sports fighting going on, which is to say like that kind of like pushing and shoving, get back to your bench, I'm with my teammate stuff happening. Um, but, but you were laying on the table like, you had just like taken yourself out of the situation. I was trying to. <laughs> I was trying to. Man. I was trying to. What were you thinking when you when you went and did that? Do you remember? Well, I remember. I remember when Ben hit me, pushed me. Um, after I fouled him, he shoved me, and I'm like, okay. It was no way we were gonna be able to to fight. The refs is in front of us, fans is around. My hands was down. If he wanted to punch me, he would have punched me at that point. It was a shove, and I'm like, okay, cool. He's about to, he, he should have been ejected, you know. Usually a ref, if you look at some of the instances, you'll see referees immediately call a tech. It was, it was never even a tech called in that game. So I just said, you know, that whole time, I said, it was nothing else, nowhere to go to the bench. The bench was too, it wasn't as stable for me. And then I saw the score, I said, I'm just going to chill out here for a little bit, you know, and that was it. I was just trying. I'm going to chill until this is until this is handled. Stephen Jackson's over there, so I'm not. I'm not even worried because Stephen Jackson, Jermaine O'Neal's there. My team was crazy, you know. So when they all stood up, I'm like, this is. I'm not worried, you know. If it was, if it was another team, <laughs> I would have had to. I don't think I would have been. I felt as safe just staying there. But then you caught it unexpectedly from the crowd. Yeah, you know. Well, before I got that drink thrown on me. Ben Wallace pointing at me, hey, I'm going to get you, whatever he's saying. Then he threw his uh, a towel at me, hit me. So I go to the ref, and people see me, but they don't show that on TV. Say, what's going on here? Then he throws his headband and wristband. So now at that point, my blood is boiling. Because I'm like, I really don't want to relax. I would love to fight you, but it's too many people. I don't want to look like a fool. I would like a clean fight. And, and then when the fan hit me, I was just, I lost it. <laughs> You know, um, and you know what? I, I didn't really lose it because when I went in that stand, I didn't even throw a punch. I, I grabbed him, and what I wanted to do was say, 
you 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 effing a hole and shake him and don't you, don't ever throw anything at me like I will kill you for doing that. I'm no sucker. Blah 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 blah. You know, and that's what I did. I didn't throw a punch until the guy who came up and held me, and I'm thinking like, okay, he's grabbing me to say stop, but then he stopped punching me in the face. That's when the first punch was thrown. You know, um, yeah. Now initially going in the stands. Some would argue that was wrong, you know. Um, I, I would argue that. <laughs> yes, a, a lot of people argued I was wrong. Some people loved it. They thought it was like WWE, um, and they praised me for it, which I don't know. I don't want to be praised for that. And then some people see the step-by-step -step process, what happened. Do you think it was wrong? I don't think it was wrong. No, I don't think it was wrong. I think um, if somebody attacks you, you have to protect yourself because— Look at all the bullies out there. Then you see these people committing suicide because they're afraid to fight a bully. Like, never be afraid of a bully. You know, um, never be afraid of somebody who's trying to embarrass you. You have to protect yourself. And that actually, and that's how, how I grew up. I couldn't survive. I couldn't have survived if I take like one story. When I was at a story of Park, story of Queens, first time I ever been robbed. These kids sat us down. We was in the pool. We had our locks. They sat us down and said, "Y'all sit there. Don't move." We was young kids in their neighborhood. And we sat there and didn't move. And I remember being humiliated that day. I was 12 years old. It ain't like Muhammad Ali getting his bike taken, like, stolen. Or, you know, this was like people sitting there and telling us, don't move. And I never been in a situation like that. I didn't know what they was going to do. So they took our locks, you know, and then they take our, uh, they didn't take our clothes, but they did take our locks, maybe took some money. And I said, I'm killing anybody who ever do that to me again. I remember that day. And I used to walk around every neighborhood. That's why people in New York City kind of knows me. They know me for going to any neighborhood. And um, I remember somebody told me they was going to rob me. I was in the NBA. They said they was going to rob me if I come back because I wasn't getting money. I went back to that neighborhood with no shirt on. And I was ready, you know. And um, I, always roll, I always roll with people who was ready. And that's what I had to, you know. Um, I always, like my crew, we was young. And, you know, and, but we would, we would do what we had to do, uh, you know, violently. And um, it sucked, you know. So that leads you to the brawl, you know. Like I was so I was so upset, you know, um, that somebody would do that to me. So I don't feel it was wrong. I feel like we were just protecting ourselves, you know. Back in the days in my neighborhood, we lived in right there in Long Island City, so it was like the drug hub, <laughs> quite frankly. But the people would come from other neighborhoods and murder people in my community, trying to set up shop in my community, not even from my community. You know, and then some people in my community, they look bad because, you know, they trying to protect us, but they protect, they shooting people, you know, they protecting the blocks. You understand? All they doing is trying to keep, well, they want to keep the drugs in the neighborhood, but they don't want nobody else coming in our neighborhood and not only selling drugs, but committing murders and crimes and killing people in our neighborhood. You know, so that was the type of stuff like that was embedded, <laughs> quite frankly. And it takes a long time for you to get that, you know, to get into a different mind frame and say, okay, how can I help these type of people? You know, that's why I do so much mental health work. That's why I do so much work with schools. That's why I'm so into the kids. You know, that, it's that passion because, you know, I don't want nobody to grow up how I grew up. It seemed like in the book, one of the things that you regretted most about that brawl was that while you loved playing for a world championship team in Los Angeles and you loved many other places you played that Indiana, I mean, kind of counterintuitively, 
you know, for a guy who thought about changing his name to Queensbridge at one point. But like Indiana was your home and like you seem to have had so much of your heart invested in Indiana as a place and as a team and you know you were playing with one of the greatest NBA players ever Reggie Miller who yeah. had, didn't have a championship and you know it was the it was maybe the peak of that team um that maybe you maybe you even almost felt shame about the fact that you had that your actions and your teammates actions had in a way derailed that yeah it was, it sucked man like people don't understand like as 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 a basketball player my colleagues are hall of famers to not have Reggie Miller have a championship ring it sucks and that's why part that's one of the reasons why I gave away my ring even though I wanted to win more it just didn't feel the same i was very grateful you know and, and I, it was luck- luckily i got one but like you know for that to happen it, it just sucked you know and i don't have a big relationship with Reggie Miller even though I played with him for a long time, I wasn't very social. I didn't talk to a lot of people back then. And, um, you know, I take the blame for that. And I'm sure they don't care. They're living great lives and everybody's doing well financially and family-wise, happy and loving. You know, but there's something about the ring, you know, and it just kills me probably more than it kills them, you know, for them not to have one, for Jermaine not to have one, you know, for for Donnie Walsh not to have one. You know, these are Donnie Walsh came to my wedding. You know, Chuck Person came to my wedding. And, so, you know, sometimes it's like you think about yourself more than others, and I'm still getting better at that. You know, um, and they were just they, so supportive. People don't understand how supportive Indiana was. They made sure I got to my therapy sessions, you know, made sure I could. It was hard for me to function from game to game. I couldn't. I was so unstable. Literally, I needed to mentally prepare Myself, and it was there for me. Um, I, I want to ask you something a little lighter. Uh, did you actually uh, recruit yourself onto the Los Angeles Lakers while Kobe Bryant was taking a shower a- after the end of the NBA Finals? Yeah, it was an interesting story. <laughs> it was an interesting story because a lot of it's, it's a. The story got. I want to hear it from you yeah, because from I've heard. I know how sports media yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and people love to make stuff up, especially when it's involved me. So I went there with a Sacramento Kings shirt on because I wanted to sign back with the Sacramento Kings for for life. So, but I wanted to go to this game, but I didn't want to act like I'm trying to play for Boston or the Lakers, like I'm a, like I'm a trader. No, I'm not that. I'm tougher than that. So I go there with the Kings jersey on. And my best friend, my good friend Lamar Odom was playing on that team. You know, we played with each other since we were kids. So I was hoping they win. So after the game, they lose by 30. Um, and I see the, the, the Boston wins. I'm like, oh, wow, I need this feeling. So I want to say bye to Lamar. So I, see, I go in the back. Security, let, they let me in the back. And um, I see Phil Jackson. I say, Phil Jackson, great job. I never really talked to Phil like that because I didn't know him. But Phil's my favorite coach ever, right? You know, Chicago Bulls. You had grown up a Bulls fan in New York. A Bulls fan, huge Phil Jackson fan. <laughs> a B.J. Armstrong man, if I remember correctly. Absolutely, B.J. Armstrong, T.J. So then after I say hi to Phil, I see Brian Shaw. And I say, I'm trying to find Kobe, and I'm saying, anybody see Kobe, I want to tell him good game because I'm a big fan of Kobe, even though we have wars. Um, they say he's in the shower. He's, and Brian Shaw said, just, he's, he's right there. 
So I'm like, all right, cool. I was going to shower. You know, Kobe's butt naked, you know, but he's facing the other way. <laughs> and I say, um, I just wanted to tell him, like, hey, man, I'm so, like, proud of you. And good game, man, and, and you're going to get him next time. I wasn't saying I'm, I'm going to be there with you. I was just, like, saying, like, you know, like, you're, you're going to get him next time. Um, but we wound, we, we wound up playing on the same team. I remember him being so mad. And the funny thing is, he turns around, and he don't want to talk to nobody. Kobe's like, when he's mad, he's mad. And he turns around, and he sees me, and he's like, he, he, he almost like laughed probably. What are you doing here? You know, like, how, how is this? Ha- why are you in the shower? <laughs> you know? And it's just like, because I wanted to say, because I, I got to go. I don't feel like waiting for you to get out of the shower. You know, I got to go. But I wanted to tell you, you know, good game. <laughs> funny, funny, funny story. I was thinking about Ichiro Suzuki, the baseball player, who just, um, he didn't retire, but he stopped playing for the Mariners. Um, and, you know, Ichiro Suzuki is is famous for his incredible drive, right? He, yeah. He brings his self-designed workout equipment with him everywhere he goes. I love it. <laughs> including just on the road with I the I love team. him already. <laughs> and, you know, he played in the major leagues till the age, I believe he's 44 now. Um, and he was famously like, would rent a ballpark in, um, in Japan in the winter and train six hours a day in the snow. And I thought, it's a, it's a beautiful miracle to have that kind of drive to be... Yeah. And, and you know, it worked, too. You know, like, what an incredible, beautiful baseball player Ichiro has been for 25 years now. But I thought, when he's done with that, what? I, there's nothing in my life that takes up that much space <laughs> that anyone could take away from me, much less to have just time take it away from me. Yeah, yeah. And it seemed... I I felt incredibly sad about it. And you seem like you were that kind of basketball player, a basketball player who was defined by your drive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It must have been incredibly difficult to stop. It, it was. Oh, you know, it's, it's, that's a great statement and comment you made. When I was 29 years old, I said, I'm downsizing my life. I no longer care about pulling up the clubs and Bentleys. I bought a Prius. Um, I lived in a little apartment on Westwood. I was going to get a studio apartment, but right before, um, the problem was my kids moved with me, but they was living with my ex-wife in Indiana. And then when they moved with me, all my kids, um, because we just got to, me and my ex-wife have a relationship like that. So then that's the only reason I got a bigger place, <laughs> you know? Um, so it was, it was such a good feeling to down, to downsize my, my thought process, not having to be number one no more. I didn't care. I worked hard, but didn't care. Um, not having to impress anybody anymore. It was the first time in my life I felt like that. And now I travel by myself. You know, uh, last year I went to Warren Buffett conference, right? And I was by myself. I was like the only black guy there, right? And, um, but I'm by myself, like 20,000 people in this arena in Omaha. And it's just such a good feeling. Whereas before it was me, my boys always had to be around people, you know? And, um, and yeah, it was hard. It was, it was really hard. 
um, because you always feel like you got to impress someone. And you're always kind of shoveling dirt in a hole, you know, like you're yeah. trying to, as long as I keep going, I'm doing something. But Yeah, you know, it's like, who are you, who are you really trying to impress? You know, so I'm, it, 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 I remember when I was 20, when I was 21, I was going through withdrawals because I was, had a bad habit of drinking and smoking. And I remember that being the toughest to get off. I'm like, I got to stop this lifestyle, blah, blah, blah. And it took, me, it took me about two years to feel comfortable without drinking and smoking. You know, um, but it's so, it's so worth it. You know, I feel great. I'm 38. You know, I feel great mentally, physically. And uh, it was, at those times, the hurdles is tough. But once you get over that hurdle, it's, it's a great feeling. Well, Matter World Peace, thank you so much for taking all this time to talk to me. It was really great to have you on the show. It was, it was great. It was, it was great that we had a chance to get these stories out. I love just, you know, talking. Hopefully this inspires somebody and they really like that conversation. Meta World Peace, recorded in 2018. His memoir, No Malice, My Life in Basketball, is available to buy in digital and in print. If you're missing basketball these days, it's a really great read. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is currently being produced out of the homes of the staff of Maximum Fun and my home in and around Los Angeles, California. Normally, we would give you here an update on what's been going on outside our window in MacArthur Park. But instead, I will tell you that in Kevin Ferguson, our producer's house, the cat licked the window the entire time we were recording this. And we don't know what the cat was getting out of that. Uh, But, you know, cats do cat stuff. Our show is produced by speaking into microphones and to a lesser extent, licking windows. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. And one last thing. You a basketball fan? Why not check out our interview with Baron Davis from 2015? That was a really great one. Baron Davis is a remarkable guy. Uh, You can find it on our website at MaximumFun.org. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Keep up with the show there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.